Today on Motley Fool Money, from housing to office space, we'll take a look at real estate trends and investing opportunities to go along with them. All that and more, coming up right now. I'm Chris Hill, joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst John Rotanti. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on the show, Chris. We've also got an update on semiconductors, but let's start with a big day in the housing industry. Shares of home builder KB Home up more than 12% this morning after fourth quarter profits came in solidly higher than expected. Revenue was a little light, but KB Home says that 2022 is going to be a good year. And when you consider how much we've all been talking about supply chain issues, John, this kind of guidance out of KB Home, I understand why the stock is up. You know, I, I call I consider this a beat and raise quarter. Like you said, revenue was a little light, but they they crushed earnings and then they raised their guidance. They're expecting guidance of uh, midpoint thirty percent sales growth, thirty percent revenue growth for twenty twenty two. They've also increased their um, guidance for return on equity, which is a measure of profitability. Um, in 2021, they did 20%. They're expecting to do 26%. So a 600 basis point improvement year over year. That's just incredible. And I think it shows the pricing power that home builders have right now, given the supply demand imbalance. Um, you know, if we go back to microeconomics 101, almost the first day of class, you learn about how supply and demand affects price. And right now, um, Freddie Mac estimates we're 4 million homes short in the US uh, because we underbuilt coming out of the global financial crisis. And so, you know, I've seen estimates that were anywhere from 4 million to actually 6 million homes short at the same time uh, that we're seeing a surge in demand because millennials are, are, are now at that home, uh, that prime home buying age. That, on top of the fact that COVID and the pandemic has changed uh, living. Patterns and and now people want to move outside of the cities. Some people want to move outside of the cities and uh, to more suburban rural areas where they have more room and more space to work from home, play from home, exercise from home in a socially distanced way. And so the combination of massive shortage of supply and surging demand is giving home buyers, I mean home builders pricing power. And so we're seeing an increase in ASPs, average selling prices. And uh, yeah, that's the story with KB Homes. And hopefully, this is a read through for the rest of the industry that the other home builders will have a good quarter as well. We'll get to the other home builders in a second. You know, for, for a brief moment there, when they were talking about their guidance, I had this crazy idea that it meant good things for people looking to buy homes. Because much like the used car market and therefore the new car market, the home buying market has just been on fire. And anecdotally, I think we we all know um, people out there who have tried to buy a new home, a bigger home, and have gotten priced out very quickly, um, or ended up paying more than they probably would have in normal times. Um, but to your point on sort of the deficit in in homes, I mean, it really does seem like when when you're talking about nationwide. Four to six million homes short. Are are we going to see the housing market on fire like this for years to come, or does it start to cool off at some point? 
So there's two views to this. Um, I do think that we're going to see an extended upcycle, Chris, an extended upcycle because inventory is so low, because supply is so low. But if you look at where KB Homes is trading, it's trading at a price to earnings ratio of six, six. That suggests that the market thinks we could be at peak earnings. So it's it's an interesting uh, enigma with the home builders right now. I'm of the view that we're going to see an extended upcycle for all the reasons we just discussed, the supply-demand imbalance. But um, the market seems to think that we are approaching a peak and that earnings could start trailing off. Because a PE of six, that's the only explanation I can think of. Let's move to a home builder that is nearly 10 times the size of KB Home, and that's Lennar. Uh, no earnings report out of Lennar, but they're increasing their annual dividend by 50%. How good are they at capital allocation? Because I, I can't imagine you make a move. You know, We've seen plenty of times where the news is someone is increasing their dividend by a penny, a couple, pen, you know, a couple of percentage points. You got to be confident you're going to make this stick if you're going up 50% for an annual dividend, right? This is a signal that the, that the management team has a lot of confidence in the company's ability to generate strong and stable cash flows across the cycle so that they can sustain this dividend. No management team wants to have to reduce, uh, suspend, or, or cut a dividend because that's going to crush the stock. I mean, no management team wants that. And so, yes, this is a signal that they think they're going to have really strong, robust cash flows going forward. Um, it is a 50% increase. It's it's an increase I love to see because this is a company that, that I actually admire a lot, Lennar. Um, but to put it into perspective, um, their dividend payout ratio is very low. So, they had a lot of room to increase. Before this announcement, I think, they, I think their dividend payout ratio was uh, well less than, than 15%. So, they, meaning um, they are paying out less than 15% of their earnings, of their net income, as a dividend. This increase will take Lennar's dividend yield which is different than the payout ratio. The payout ratio is the percentage of earnings that they pay out as a dividend. The yield is the dividend divided by the stock price. This will take their dividend yield from about 1% to about 1.4%. So, it is a nice boost in the dividend yield, but that dividend payout ratio is still very low. And so, actually, that indicates they have room to improve this dividend much further over time. You mentioned, uh, I think you used the word admire with uh, respect to Lennar. Um, we talked previously about KB Home. DR Horton is a major home builder. What is it about Lennar and the way they run their business um, that makes you like them more so than the others? So, if I had to put one thing on Lennar that I like more than the others, they have a division which is called uh, Lenx or Lenarx, which is basically a venture capital division, where they invest in um, different home-related technologies. One of which is Opendoor, the the leading eye buying company uh, in the world. Now that Zillow has closed its eye buying business, it's we're left with Opendoor and Redfin, and they own a. Uh, a minority stake, but a substantial stake in Opendoor, and then a variety of other venture-like investments as well. I like the industry as a whole because they're moving from a asset-heavy, land-heavy business model 
where they would own and develop the land, which required a lot of debt, to one that is much more land light. So they're owning and developing less land and focusing more on returns on invested capital and returns on equity. And we saw that in KB's guidance where they're increasing their return on equity from 2021 levels by 600 basis points. Before we move on uh, to semiconductors, I need you to cure me of something. And that is when I, and you, and you referenced Zillow, when I hear the phrase I buying, unfortunately, I think of Zillow and the debacle of, of Zillow attempting to roll up their I buying program and then cutting it back and then suspending it. I mean, it was breathtaking the speed with which they launched and shut down their I buying program. Um, I feel like I buying is one of those things. I shouldn't. My my default thought should not be Zillow and its you know debacle with I buying. How should investors think about I buying um, either on the consumer side or just as uh, something to watch within this industry? I don't know. I I was bullish on the potential for I buying to really transform the home buying and selling experience from a consumer standpoint until the Zillow debacle. Now I'm much less bullish on I buying. One thing I'll say about Open Door is they are a pure play I buying company. Zillow started as something else. Zillow started as a basically advertising driven search engine for homes. Then they tried to shift into I buying. Maybe Open Door will have a better go at it because that's all they do. Um, and maybe they're just better at it. Maybe they're better managed when it comes to that, better organized when it comes to that. The thing I like about Lennar and owning, owning a stake in, which I, I don't have a stake in Lennar personally, but the thing I like about investing in, through Lennar is you get some exposure to iBuying through their investment in Open Door, but you're paying once again like a PE of seven or eight or something like that. Taiwan Semiconductor posted record profits in the fourth quarter. They also offered upbeat guidance and said they plan to spend up to $44 billion this year to increase their manufacturing capacity. For those unfamiliar with Taiwan Semiconductor, they're a supplier for Apple, Qualcomm, and others of that size and ilk. Uh, shares up more than 5% this morning. Is it the record profits, the guidance? the commitment to investing the money, or is it some combination of all three that's pushing this stock higher? It's it's all three. Taiwan Semiconductor, and I don't like I don't like to speak in superlatives, is probably the most important company on planet Earth. Wow, really? Yep. Yep. Every electronic device in the world has something from Taiwan Semiconductor in it. They manufacture over 50% of all the world's contracted semiconductors, but they manufacture 90% of the, of the most advanced technological chips. 90%. So, they're a really, really important company, especially as we get more and more digital and we start, and, and, and electronics start pushing into more and more of our daily lives. The other thing I'll say is $44 billion in CapEx is probably, I'd have to check this, the most capital intensive business on earth. So not just the most. I don't. I'm not. I don't. I'm not aware of another company spending 44 billion dollars in property, plant, equipment in one year. There may be a few, but I could count them on my hand. So there's not a lot. What that signifies, Chris. What that signals 44 billion dollars in capex is that's the demand that they see for their products. They need to build this capacity 
in order to satisfy demand. And so along with that increase in CapEx guidance for 2022, they also increased their long-term revenue guidance from 10 to 15% up to 15 to 20%. That's a substantial jump. And um, you see how important a company is when they need to invest 40 plus billion dollars a year in capital to, to satisfy demand. This is a demand story. It's incredible. The world is short semiconductors and Taiwan Semiconductor is trying to take share and fill that demand. This seems like one of those uh, bits of data that um, whether you're bullish or bearish on semiconductors and the global supply chain, there's you, you got something to work with here because on the you know, on the bullish side, you look at them raising guidance. You know, you speak of the the demand. On the bearish side, they're investing this money. It's not going to increase capacity in the next twelve months. I mean, this is this is a long play, and I think that for a company of this size, you want to see this type of investment. But th- this isn't going to dramatically move the needle on semiconductor production in twenty twenty two, is it? No, you're exactly right. There, some of this, some of this capex is going to go towards building next gen chips, which they aren't even selling yet. So these three nanometer and these two nanometer chips, right now they're the size of the chips they're selling are in the seven nanometer and five nanometer space. So a lot of this is very, like you said, far out. It takes over a year and between ten and twenty billion dollars to build one of these fabs, one of these fabrication facilities. It's extremely capital intensive. By the way, there's it currently. Taiwan Semiconductor only has one competitor for the leading for the world's most leading edge chips, and that's Samsung. They will soon have Intel as well. Intel says they're going to get into this space, but right now it's it's a duopoly, and Taiwan Semiconductor is far and away the leader. They they have ninety percent market share of the world's most advanced chips. Last thing, and then I'll let you go. I, Taiwan Semiconductor, I I kind of feel like they are akin to Nvidia. In the sense that both companies are worth more than six hundred billion dollars each, but they're not nearly as well known to consumers and even investors as other companies of that size. Uh, when you think about you know, sort of consumer names like Facebook, I'm sorry, Meta platforms that we're, we're supposed to call it now, uh, but but these are enormous companies um, from a stock perspective. It's had a tremendous run. Do you look at Taiwan Semiconductor as a stock uh, people should look at right now, or is this one of those times where it's like eh, it's you have to? I don't want to say you have to have a strong stomach, but but it's it's a little frothy right now, maybe. No, sure. If you have a long enough time horizon, which I'll define as as you know at least five years, you're willing to hold the stock for five years. Yes, I think now is a good time to look at Taiwan Semiconductor. Thirty seconds. I'll just say you mentioned Nvidia. So um, Taiwan Semiconductor is a platform that they they allow their customers to 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 acquire much more value than Taiwan Semiconductor keeps for itself. And so, for example, Jenshin Wang, the CEO of NVIDIA, has a quote, and it's, there's basically Air and Taiwan Semiconductor. That's how important, <laughs> that's how important NVIDIA sees Taiwan Semiconductor to its own business. Yeah, it's, it's a really, it's, it's, it was a platform before Amazon Web Services was a platform. This is why I love talking to John Ritanti. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. I hope I can come back soon.
After an historic year for real estate investing, what can investors expect in 2022? Among other things, a sea change in commercial real estate. Peter Woolard has more. Chris, I'm Deidre Willard, and I'm here with lead real estate analyst Matt Argersinger. Matt, 2021 was a pretty strong year for real estate in the stock market, huh? It certainly was, Deidre. I mean, if you look at the Vanguard Real Estate ETF, which is a benchmark that we follow when we're looking at real estate investments, it was up over 40%. It was its best year ever, and that index has been around for about 16 years. If you look at the National Association of REITs, which is another index, it had its second best year on record, up 41%. So, extraordinary year for real estate and REITs in 2021. And, you know, REITs have a great track record. If for those listening who who might not be familiar with REITs, real estate investment trusts, um, if you factor in 2021, they've returned on average 13.5% per year since 1972. So almost 50 years worth of data that outperforms the S&P 500. So it's uh, it was a great year for real estate in 2021, but it really real estate investing has been doing well for investors for for decades. And REITs were bouncing back from a pretty hard 2020, and some of the uh, some of the impact of COVID-19. Yeah, it's fair to point that out. I think 2020 was a difficult year for real estate. It was one of those sectors that was more acutely affected than other industries, just because if you think about retail real estate or hotels, hospitality, um, office is is one that's still suffering from the effects of the pandemic. So, 2020 was a very very difficult year. Uh, REITs were down, you know, in the high single digits on average that year. So. I expected, I think as you did, that 2021 was going to be better, and it certainly was. I don't think we thought it was going to be this good or historically good as it was, though. Exactly. Well, let's talk about some of those trends that we're most interested in. The first one, I feel like, is one that's both pandemic-driven, but also was in already in process for years before that, and that's Sunbelt migration. People moving to Texas, Florida. Redfin came out with their hottest neighborhoods recently. I think most of them were in Florida. A lot of really interesting uh, activity happening in the Sunbelt right now. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, like as you said, this was happening before the pandemic. We saw all kinds of, of trends, population. If you look at U-Haul data, which is a, a cool data set that you and I look at now and then, um, it was all heading down toward the Sunbelt markets, the southeast, the southwest, away from the coasts. And what the pandemic did is it really just accelerated that trend. Suddenly, you had a lot of workers who were used to living in sort of the big coastal gateway markets: your San Francisco's, Los Angeles's, your New York's, your Boston's. Um, and all of a sudden, they had a lot more flexibility with their job, and they can kind of work remotely wherever they thought would you know they thought would be best for them. And that meant looking for, in a lot of cases, cheaper places in in the south southwest or in the inner parts of the country, or just places that they have a better life. They you know they prefer to live and still be a productive employee. And so those trends really really took off with the pandemic. They have not ceased, and we've continued to see this sort of big uh, swell um, population swell down. To those other markets. And what you're also seeing in a lot of those places is there's just not enough houses. There are not enough houses at all in the country to meet the demand out there, but especially in those markets, those hot demand markets. You mentioned Florida and Texas. If you look at places like Austin, uh, Texas, Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, or if you go to Florida and you look at Miami or Tampa, uh, there's just so much demand for housing. There's not a lot of it. There's a demand for apartments. So you're seeing home prices go up, you're seeing apartments, uh, apartment rents surge. And unfortunately, development's just not going to be able to meet that kind of demand. So you're going to see I think again rising home prices, 
rising rents, uh, in, especially in those markets. So cheaper rents, hopefully bigger apartments, uh, warm weather. If investors were looking to bet on some of those trends, uh, what's one idea they could take a look at? Well, I think one idea that comes to mind is Mid-America Apartment Communities, tickers MAA. It's it's the biggest owner and operator of apartments in the country, actually, but they have so much exposure, about 90% of their assets are in the, quote, Sunbelt region. And that's where they've been focused for, for decades now. And so, uh, as the largest apartment owner and operator in those markets, uh, I think they're, they've been a huge beneficiary of this demand. Their occupancy rates are at record. Rents in a lot of their markets are up double digits, if not even 20% more in a lot of places. And I think that's going to continue. So, Mid-America Apartment Communities, uh, it's had a nice run as a stock, but I could, see, I could see more upside as this trend plays out. Now, our last trend, I feel like, is pretty much COVID-driven, and that's uh, the impact of remote work on the office real estate sector. A lot of companies were planning to have people come back in January. That's been pushed back. Some companies have just given up on announcing deadlines of return at all. And yet, at the same time, I've seen a flurry of big office leases from companies like Meta, Roku, in, in markets like New York and Los Angeles. What's going on here? It is, it is the most confusing part of the real estate market uh, for a lot of reasons. As you pointed out, teacher, I mean, we know what the pandemic has done with the work from home and hybrid work schedules and what that means for office occupancy, which is so low right now. Yet, a lot of these technology companies out there and life science companies out there are leasing office office space at record paces. And maybe that's not surprising. But I think if we step back and look at the office market, I really do think we've passed peak office, so to speak. I mean, no matter where you look, what surveys you read or which economists you read, um, the prevailing thought is that you know, companies are going to lease, lease less office space today and in the future than they did prior to the pandemic. It's a, it's a real major sea change for the industry. And so, I, and I don't think we understand the full implications of this, but the real, the real short-term implication is that we have too much office square footage in this, in this country. A lot of it needs to be transitioned to probably apartments, as you're seeing in certain cities, or to maybe even to hospitality, or maybe that office just gets converted to kind of co-working spaces. So you know, it's not necessarily a dedicated corporate office or corporate headquarters anymore. It's a place where employees come to collaborate. Um, you know, on a maybe not a, on an off-routine basis, and so. That's kind of the state of office right now. Now, there are parts of the office market that I think can do well. Technology, R&D, life science, uh, medical offices. So, we actually are in a position after the pandemic to actually need more of that kind of office. Uh, And so, there are parts of the office market that I think are going to work. Again, co-working is probably going to do well, medical office, flex spaces. uh, But the traditional office uh, building, I think, uh, is going to probably become a thing of the past, believe it or not. Well, you can't do your uh, medical research at home, and that's one of the reasons that you and I are both excited about life sciences and the growth in that sector. I know that uh, you and I both have a favorite in this category. Let's talk about it. Sure. Well, my favorite has always been for a long time, and that's Alexandria Real Estate Equities, ticker ARE. It's the leading real estate REIT for life sciences and technology. I mean, they, they really cater to if you think about companies like Moderna or Pfizer, who kind of led the vaccine front, or companies like Facebook uh, that are you know doing all kinds of innovations, or I'm sorry, Meta, I keep calling it Facebook, uh, Google, uh, these are the companies that really lease from uh, from Alexandria Real Estate, and and we we see that demand has not fallen off. Alexandria Real Estate's occupancy has never been higher. It's 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 
had no problem collecting rents throughout the entire crisis, which is such a departure from other office REITs, which did suffer. Uh, so, I love it. It's got a founder-led, uh, founder-led management team. They've been outperforming the market for, for decades now at this point. And uh, even though the stock has had a really nice run, and it's really it's a little bit expensive, maybe from just some valuation uh, points of view, but it's one that I like very much, and it's really taking advantage of this trend towards life science office. Absolutely, yeah. They had a recent big deal in uh, with Moderna in Cambridge, Massachusetts. They're really focused in all of the markets where life science is uh, is booming. That's right. I mean, yeah, the Moderna, you mentioned Moderna there. I think it's a five hundred thousand square foot new headquarters they're building in Cambridge, and it's going to be you know owned and operated by Alexandria Real Estate. Love it. Well, always a pleasure to talk real estate with you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Deidre. That's all for today, but coming up tomorrow, earnings season officially kicks off with financials. Jason Moser and Maria Gallagher will be here to break it all down. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.